I want to read you a passage. I want to read you a passage. You don't have to turn to it. I'm just going to, I'm just going to go ahead and read it for us because if you've ever envisioned your life being this, and when we talk about transformation and change, you've envisioned your life, man, I wish those were true of my life, those characteristic traits were true of my life. And then this sermon series, and essentially what we're talking about this, this, uh, this week and next week is for you. Because here's what Paul says. He says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, he says, clothe yourself with compassion, to which you go immediately, wow, I wonder what my life would look like if I was as compassionate as Jesus was. That kind of compassion characterized my life. And what would my relationships look like? And then he says, not just compassion, but kindness. To which you and I go, kindness, oh, I wonder, I wonder what my life would look like if kindness, kindness that's, that's characteristic of Jesus was true of my life. Can you imagine what your relationships with other people would look like? And then he says, humility. Again, imagine, humility. Imagine your life being founded on this kind of humility, humility of Christ. I tell you right now, for many of us, this character aspect right here is the root source of why we have a lot of issues that we have, and I'll get into that in a little bit more. Uh, gentleness, and then he says patience. Then bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you have against one another. Can you imagine your life characterized by unconditional forgiveness? Imagine your life being characterized by unconditional forgiveness, no matter who they are, no matter what they have done, being able to freely, freely be able to forgive and forgive. I'll, can you imagine our society and our culture described by this kind of forgiveness? What would it look like? And then he says, over all these things, and he binds them all, put on love, which binds them all together. Can you imagine? You see where I'm going with this, right? Can you imagine our lives and our society, our culture, our world being characterized by this kind of other to which you and I go, okay, well, how do we get there? How do we get that? What, 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 what? And we immediately go, what do we need to do? Give me a list of things. Come on now. That's what this is about, right? Transformation, change, metamorphosis. You're going to talk about, and here's what Paul says. You ready? Here's what he says about how this happens in your life. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 through 4, and passages up here. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. To which you and I go, okay, he seems to be talking about heart and mind and, and setting our hearts and attitude and change. And I don't see uh, spiritual disciplines and I don't see pull yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't see how much you got to do this. And Okay, maybe, maybe in verse 2. Verse 2. Then set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. All right, you're becoming redundant. You just said that. Okay, you kind of sound like Peter, you know, you're repeating things over and over again. Get on with it. What are you really trying to say? Verse 3, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Do you have something to mark your Bibles with and something you need to remember for the rest of your life about how transformation and change happens in your life? There it is right there. He says, remember that your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Verse 4, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Wow, you guys, if you and I just understood the power of what we just read, if you and I just understood the power of what you just read, listen, this is essentially what Paul is saying. Paul says, you want to experience transformation. You want to experience change. You want to become more like Christ. You want better relationships. Do you want a better world? Do you want those things to be true of you? Then guess what you need to do? He says, set your minds on things above. Set your hearts on things above. Remember and place your trust and faith in something that's already happened, something that is already true of you. But Peter, uh, but Paul, what about the list of, ah, remember that your life, because of what Christ has done, is now hidden with Christ in God. Therefore, therefore what? Therefore experience change. To which you and I go, that is so foreign to us because it, because it is foreign to us. Do you know Why? Because the way we go about transformation and change is so radically unbiblical that it's not even funny. Look, we've been talking about transformation and change. Let's brief review. The reason why I review, by the way, I have people honestly come up to me and go, I had no idea what you were talking about last week. But today I got it. Your review helped. 
So I do the review. Another thing is to catch people up. The foundation of this has been this principle, that we grow in the Christian life the same way we began it. Say that with me. Ready? We grow in the Christian life the same way we began it. That is absolutely biblical and found throughout the scriptures. It is not. Here's how I begin the Christian life, and once I become a Christian, here's how I grow in it. The Bible says over and over and over again, the way you started the Christian life is the way you grow in it. If you do not get that principle, if you miss up on that, then you're going to miss the whole thing. So we went all the way back and asked the question, how do we begin the Christian life? Because there are lots of places in the New Testament that talks about that. We went straight to the heart of it, though, because Jesus just spelled it out. In Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, Jesus says, repent and believe the good news here's how you enter the kingdom repent and believe the good news and jesus literally just put it right there he said there's a dual dynamic a two-part dynamic of how you begin the christian life you got to repent and you got to believe the good news or believe the gospel but two-part dynamic here's how you grow in it here's how you experience transformation in it you repent and you believe We spent two weeks talking about what does it mean to repent. And I'm telling you, if you, need to, if you need to listen to those podcasts over and over again until it's drilled into your heads, because I really doubt that many of us just went, I got it, and we move on. Repentance, what is that? It's not feeling sorry, God, I'm sorry. I really did wrong. I really messed up. Will you forgive me? It's not repentance. Repentance also is not stopping, turning around, going the other way. We've said for two weeks, repentance is uprooting whatever it is, is our false idol, whatever is our false God. Repentance is uprooting whatever it is that we founded our identity, our significance, our life on. That thing that we look to to say, now nah, I'm okay. That thing that we look to to say, that is my God. Repentance is... Doing the hard, courageous look to underneath, look underneath, underneath the eating disorders, underneath the anger, underneath the bitterness, underneath the worry and anxiety and going, what is it that's causing me to act the way I do? And once we identify it, and we talked about that last Sunday, right? Uprooting it. But as we said, that doesn't just happen once and then we move on. Look, every single day of your life and my life is an absolute challenge to say God you are my God God I worship you only God you have my allegiance you have my affections can anybody relate to this come on just because you're a Christian you click on and go God is no every day of our lives it's significant it's our job it's our spouse it's our intelligence it's our achievements it's our accomplishments it's whatever constantly things are crying out constantly things are tugging at us constantly things are wanting to grab us and allow us or, or force us to worship prompt us to worship that which is other than god and idolatry and full worship of false gods is the determining factor of why not only we don't become a christian first and foremost but why we don't grow so we said what is it what is it what is it do you know do you know christians i'm talking to you Good Christians, I'm talking to, do you know what that is? That is your temptation to be your false God. What is it? Now, that's the, sort of the negative dynamic, if you will. The positive dynamic, the positive dynamic then is what we're going to be talking about this week and next week, and that is believe the gospel. What the heck is that? What does that mean, believe the gospel? Now, just to help you guys connect with what we're talking about, Clearly, gospel, gospel good news is not Jesus Christ died for you, so if you believe it, you can be forgiven of your sins and go to heaven. That's a part of it. But can we be honest this morning? Does that help you grow? If that was the sum total of what the gospel is, does that help you grow and transform and change? Does it? Does it? Does it work? Can I put it even this, this way bluntly? I was Christian most of my life. The thought of, I'm going to heaven when I die. Goody, yeah, yeah. Does that help in my everyday struggles with pride, with anger, with worry? Does that help in my everyday struggle with idolatry? Does it work in my everyday? Maybe it helps you. And maybe you're one of those people that you've been disciplined. So you go, the thought that I'm forgiven of my sins, that I'm going to go to heaven when I die, has been the motivation that's allowed to bring about transformation change. It doesn't work for most of us. Hello, anybody? So it's clearly not what the gospel is in its entirety. Is it? But the truth is, when you look in the New Testament, just even a def that's not what the definition of the gospel is even in the New Testament. Now, let me begin here. The New Testament word for gospel was not a necessarily biblical word. Did you all know that? The word gospel. 
That's not a biblical word. It's a secular word. What do I mean? The word gospel, euangelion, or gospel, or evangel, the shorter term in Greek that we use, you know what it literally was? It literally, in that time, first century, was, 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 was used to describe a historical event of significance that changed the listener's condition when you heard it, and it required a response. Let me say that once more. The word gospel literally that the New Testament Christians, New Testament writers used, the word gospel literally was used to describe an historical event of significance that once you heard it, it changed the listener's condition. And I'll talk about what that means. And Ricardo's response, for example, the gospel was, hey, Caesar is the new emperor. Gospel, newspaper, gospel, gospel, gospel. Went what was the, hey, what was the gospel again? Caesar became the emperor. Historic event. That means your relationship to that event has changed you. He's your emperor now. It means certain things. And it requires a response. You've got to bow down to him. Victory in war. A nation won. Gospel. The gospel says, what does it mean? The gospel literally meant historical event. This nation won. That means if you're a part of this nation that lost, it changes your condition. And it requires a response. So the New Testament writers come along, right? And they take this word and they Christianized it. And when they Christianized it, here's what they were getting at, okay? The gospel. Good news of what God has done to accomplish salvation through Jesus Christ in history, which requires a response. That's how they use the word gospel in the New Testament. It's a historical significant event. What? Christ died. Christ died. It really happened. Christ died. Well, that's pretty good. What, what, what else? No, because he's died and he rose. It changes you. It changes the condition. Like you got to either accept it or reject it. You got to either believe it or disbelieve it. You can't be neutral. It changes you. And then if you embrace it and respond to it, oh, it really changes you. Are you guys tracking so far? That's what the word gospel literally meant in the New Testament, and that's how it was used. Gospel. Now, so just by that, before we add flesh to and define it, Gospel, clearly, even the New Testament writers was not, Jesus Christ died for you so you can go to heaven when you die. And thank God that it's not what the entirety of the gospel is. Because if, if, if Jesus says, believe that, because that will result in life transformation, you and I are going, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. I believe it, but it doesn't work. To which God goes, because that's not what the gospel is in its entirety. Whew. Secondly, oh, this is huge. The gospel is not advice about what you need to do to reach God. The gospel is not advice. Here's how you reach God. But now think about this. Your life and my Christian life, and when we define gospel with our lives, it exactly says that we believe that the gospel is what we must do to reach God. Advice on how we reach God. That's what we think the gospel is. Because we believe gospel. God is in all this work. Now I'm in. Thank God. Over here, though, once I'm a Christian, the gospel is, hey, here's how you reach God, okay? Hey, here are the list of things that you need to do to be right with him. Hey, here, and if you say, I don't believe that, yes, you do. Yes, you do. How do I know? Have you approached transformation change as a Christian primarily as what you do or primarily as what God has already done and appropriating that truth every day in your life? Think about it. What is your approach to the Christian life? What, is it what I do? Primarily what I do. I got advice about what I need. Or is it what God has already done in Christ and appropriating that into your life daily? What is your approach to Christian life? See, for many of us, we're moralists. Many of us, we're legalists. Many of us, we are, thank you, Gerald. We are no better, you guys than very good moral people who happen to have a tag of Christianity. Let me, let me show you what I mean. Here's the difference between religion and gospel. Ready? Religion, religion, not gospel, religion, from which many of us everyday function is I obey. I do right. I'm a good person. I'm morally upright. I tithe. I go to small group. I avoid X, Y, and Z. Therefore, religion says, God accepts me. God loves me. God shows favor to me. God Gospel says what Christ has already done. I am accepted. I'm in. 
I'm uncondemnable. I'm undisapprovable. I'm embraced. I'm unconditionally loved. Nothing could change that. Therefore, the gospel says, I have all the motivation in the world to be holy. I have all the motivation in the world to be righteous. I have all the motivation in the world to live my life for him. Gospel versus religion. Many of us function from the approach of God, a religion and not gospel, even Christians. How do I know? Well, let me go down a list of things. You tell me how you respond. How do you respond to suffering? How do you respond to hard times? How do you respond to tragedy? If you're honest, if you're an honest thinking Christian, how do you respond to those things? Because when I may say honest, honesty is not God is good all the time, all the time God is good, so therefore, and not intellectually, mentally engaging in it. No, how do you really respond when suffering comes? Because if you respond or function out of religion, I obey, therefore God accepts me, I do. Here's how you respond to suffering. You either get mad at God because you say, how dare you? What did I do for you? I'm moral. I'm good. I'm a good Christian for crying out loud. And you would never say this out loud to anybody, right? Or God. God forbid. But inside you're going, I don't deserve this. What is this? And you get angry at God and saying, I'm doing these things. I deserve better. Or you get mad at yourself. You get angry at yourself. Why? Because you're saying, I'm not doing enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not moral enough. I didn't raise my children right. That's why. I'm not honest at work. I didn't. And you go on a list of things. How do you handle suffering? How do you handle suffering? Trials. Secondly, some of you in here, without me even saying anything, you're just feeling condemned and just feeling guilty. Without me saying or doing anything, you're just feeling condemned. Christians, feeling getting guilty. You just, and you, you almost function out of despondency that says, even if God forgives me, I can't forgive myself. Do you hear what you're saying? Even if God can forgive me, I can't forgive myself. And you put up at a pedestal, an idol, like God, some standard or your conscience. And because you fail to meet it, you're despondent even to the point of hating yourself. Do you know the gospel? Third, I just wonder if anybody's honest enough to admit this morning that these thoughts go through your mind. Man, I'd have so much more fun if I wasn't a Christian. You know, when I was in college, I've shared this before. Here I was, good Christian, you know, I'm going to obey and be moral. I was a senior guy. He was just wild, just just a wild guy, you know, complete ladies guy, just doing all these things. And you know, I was a Bible study leader. I was this religious person, right? And secretly, I'm, in, I'm ending this guy. Secretly, I'm saying to myself, I became a Christian way too early, God. <laughs> I should have waited a little bit, you know what I'm saying? At least until like in the college, because I can do, you know, and then after. Singles, can I talk to you guys? Do you honestly? Do those thoughts sometimes go through your mind as you look at your other single friends, not Christian friends, your coworkers? Do you sometimes secretly wish, if I was, is Christianity drudgery? Is Christianity work? Is Christianity just so that I can keep, you know what? You do not know the gospel. You do not know the gospel. You do not know the gospel. Lack of a deep belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, lack of a deep belief and appropriation daily of the truth, the gospel in our lives is the reason for spiritual pride, is the reason for spiritual apathy, is the reason for spiritual deadness. The reason, the lack of an appropriation, deep belief in the gospel so that it moves from intellect to heart. You know what, this morning I'm feeling absolutely helpless because what I'm going to say, some of you are already going, I already know this, and I'm going, no, you don't. When I say no, you don't, it has not transferred to your heart because if your heart really grasped it, your life every day would look different. This doesn't get more practical than this. Deep appropriation of the gospel into our lives, the gospel of Jesus Christ into our lives is the reason why we've stopped spiritually growing. We've hit that wall. And for some of us, we're at that point this morning going, I just want to chuck it all. This is not working out. This is not. If that's you, I'm so glad you're here. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? Here's a big chunk of what the gospel is. As Paul says in Romans chapter 1. Watch this. Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, by the way, anybody else like me? I, I really dislike reading the book of Romans because it's just such a hard book. Anybody else? 
Maybe you're one of those Bible scholars and you love going through the book of Romans, but book of Romans, and what I want to do today is actually really simplify it for you so that I just want to break it down to the, so much that some of you guys are going to go, that's just too simple for me. If that's your response, I've done my job, okay? Because I want to do that for you so that as you walk out of here, you go, man, I want to read the book of Romans all over again. Book of Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Here's what Paul says is the gospel of Jesus Christ, okay? Verse 116, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Remember, that word in Greek literally is evangel, evangelion, okay? Gospel. Because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. To which many of us go, I still don't get it. What the heck is the gospel? That's why, if you're simple like me, I went and, and, and consulted other translations. And this passage really came alive to me about what the gospel is. The same passage in the New Living Translation. Look what it says. For I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. This good news tells us, pay attention, how God makes us right in his sight. Now, Paul says right away, you want to know a big chunk of the gospel? Here it is. Gospel tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from first start to finish by faith. As the scripture says, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. You will not be able to understand the gospel. You will not be able to understand the book of Romans without understanding the word righteousness. Everybody, please say that with me. Righteousness. One more time. Ready? Righteousness. Appears hundreds of times in the New Testament. Here's what that word means, okay? It does not mean stiff. Righteous. It doesn't mean stiff. It doesn't mean starch shirt righteous. It doesn't mean moral. It doesn't mean moral high horse. It doesn't mean any of those things. It's not a behavioral term. You know what what righteous literally means? It's a condition. In Greek, it's a legal term in the court of law. But to simplify it, break it down, here's what the word righteous or righteousness in the Bible means. It literally means to make right, NLT. To make right, to make further, to be embraced by, to be welcomed, to have deep fellowship with, to receive. Justification, big Bible word, is the process into which we are made right. We are embraced. We are received. We are allowed deep fellowship, relational word. Do you know why this is so critical for us? Opposite of righteousness is not immoral. Opposite of righteousness is not impure. Opposite of righteousness, as Paul defines it, is rejection, is broken fellowship is to be cast out, is to be unacceptable, is to be condemned. Why is this important? Do you know that you and I are all self-righteous people? I didn't say that to offend. Self-righteous is not, moral high horse, I... Self-righteous literally is self-acceptance. Self-righteousness, building our lives on things to build self-acceptance, to build our lives on something that says, now I can be accepted, now I can be received, now I can be welcomed, now I'm okay. Self-righteousness is someone who establishes a personal standard of what makes them right with other people, with themselves, and with God. And you know what the thing is? We all have a personal standard of righteousness that's been developed our entire life. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Anybody remember recess in elementary school? I said this morning, when I was 10 years old, you know, and in and, and kindergarten, 10-year-olds are not in kindergarten, right? What I meant to say was, I mean, I'm slow, but I'm not that slow, you know? What I meant to say was when I was in 10th grade, recess, what happened? All the guys over here, all the girls over here, what did the guys do? Guys, there were those two cool guys, right, whether it be tag or football, and rest of the guys lined up on that fence. Remember this? Y'all line up on the fence, and two guys are staring at a group of guys, and the guys are going, yeah, I'll take you. Uh, I'll take you. 
Uh, I'll take you, and I'll take you. And if you are unathletic, if you aren't very popular, very good, you knew the drill, right? The inevitable countdown from nine, eight, seven, six, five. At which point for me, by the time it came to three, I was like, oh, I got to go to the bathroom. All right, I'll see you guys later. And booked out of there. Why? Ten years old, you and I are already establishing personal standard of righteousness. What makes us acceptable? What makes us in? What brings us in? What brings us to be received? Is it athletic prowess? Is it popularity? Standard of personal righteousness. And then you get to 14 years old, right? Freshman, turnabout. You got to ask somebody out, right? Or women ask you out, right? Whatever. And you're sitting there going, okay, is somebody going to find me even like remotely attractive? Somebody will find me like even remotely popular. And you maybe even go to the dance and you got the whole dynamic of guys on one end, girls on the other end. You know, you just want to eye each other out. And guys that know that they're cool, know that they're in, go up to girls and be like, yeah, let's dance, stuff like that. But you got me hiding in a corner going, I am just such a nerd. <laughs> it's true. I'm not just saying this. 14 years old. Verdict is in. You're receiving verdict. You're not acceptable, Peter. You're not very embraceable. You're not actually very welcome. You're not actually receivable. You're not cool enough. You're not. You grow up a little older. You're 23 years old. You graduate college. You're going for a job interview. They have your resume. The guy's sitting there looking you up and down, right? Your face, your resume, how you dress, your hygiene. They're essentially looking over and going, here's a verdict. They're not saying this, but essentially they're saying, here's a verdict. You're either in or you're out. You're either acceptable or you're not. You're either qualified or you're not. You're either worthy or you're not. And you're sitting there going, I want the verdict to be positive. Somebody to tell me that I'm in. I'm acceptable. And that 23-year-old grows to be 27. You've been dating somebody for three years. It's time to pop the question. You're thinking about buying the ring, and you buy the ring, but there's still that nagging sense of, is she going to say yeah? Are her parents going to say yes? And that question of the verdict is not in yet. What is the verdict going to be? Am I in? Am I acceptable? Am I received? Am I good enough for their daughter? Am I good enough for their son? Every single day of your life, every single day of my life, thousands and thousands of verdict has been come upon us. And verdict that says you're either righteous in accepted, received, welcomed, or you're not. Now here's the thing. You ready? Listen, watch this, watch this. The Bible says that the root basis of all our sin is living and swimming in this culture, living and swimming in this society, living and swimming our entire lives with verdicts constantly being given, verdicts constantly coming our way saying, either you're righteous or you're not, either you're in or you're not, either you're not. And what does it depend on? How much have you achieved? What's your job like? How do you look? What's your clothes look like? Are you successful? Are you popular? Are you funny? Are you intelligent? Are you? All of these verdicts that are coming at us saying, yes, I am enough. Yes, I am enough. Yes, I am enough. Then we function our entire lives with ourselves, with our relationships. When we become a Christian, guess what happens? That mode that we have doesn't just disappear. Once we become a Christian, this mode that we operate out of, this functional thing that we operate out of, establishing our own personal standard of righteousness, when we become a Christian, we default more right into that so that even though we are in, even though we are accepted, even though God says there's nothing that can make you uncondemnable, once you become a Christian, we default right into the mode of, if I only do, if I'm only enough of, if I can own. And the result, the Bible says, is spiritual deadness. I'm talking to you Christians, not non-Christians. I'll talk to them in a moment. I'm talking to you Christians. Do you realize this powerful dynamic that's at work in your life? Do you realize this powerful dynamic that you and I have been bombarded with since we were like two years old this dynamic that says establish your own personal standard of righteousness because that's how you get in. That's how you get accepted. That's how you're welcomed. That's how you're embraced. That even though God says there's this powerful truth that is true of you, we say, God, but. We say, God, but what about? That's why some of you are just... Christians, without anybody saying it, you're just feeling guilty this morning. You're just feeling condemned. Why? Because you said to yourself, now that I'm a Christian, I got the standard I need to reach. I got the standard of righteousness. It's morality now. It's my thing now. It's the rules and regulations. And you know, and everybody knows, you can't reach it. 
And because you can't reach it, you're sitting there absolutely despondent and overwhelmed with guilt. And the Bible says, do you know the gospel? Some of you are just feeling anxious and insecure. Why? Because maybe you're one of those people, you're super disciplined, you know, and you're one of those Christians that are just like amazingly like, I'm just going to straight and narrow. And you're able to somehow pull this off. But here's the thing with you. There's a sense of, man, how long am I going to keep this up? How much longer am I going to be able to uh, pull this off? You're sort of waiting for the hammer to drop one of these days. And for those of you that are the straight and narrow and you're just super, when the hammer drops, as a pastor, I've seen this over and over again, people not just get discouraged, they reject Christianity and they say, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Or, like a lot of Christians, you swing from one extreme of pride because you're going, I can do it. Why can't you? I can do it. Why can't they? Judgmental too. Despondency. Things like, I'm a worthless Christian. God can't love me. God can't forgive me. You guys, listen to this. If you're sitting there going, that is so elementary. That is, listen. If your life is not characterized by what Paul said in Colossians 3, he says that the result isn't, or the, or, or the reason is not because you're just not trying hard enough, you're not knowledgeable enough, you're not intellectual enough. Paul says the reason is you have not embraced the gospel. You've not embraced the gospel. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? Let me go ahead and show you what Paul says, and then I'll just reiterate it, because it's so simple and yet so powerful. So simple that even a child could understand it and so deep and powerful that it's taken scholars years and thousands and thousands of people to try and uncover the truth. Here's what Paul says the gospel is as he defines it. This is so powerful. Romans chapter 3, verse 20 to 22. I'll go ahead and read in the New Living Translation again. For no one can ever be made right with God. Do you hear that? Nobody can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. Verse 21. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law. Did anybody catch what I just read? Did anybody just catch what I just read? Because if you're going to come up here and argue, we're made righteous by what? You can argue all you want. Paul's words, we are not ever made righteous. Not now, not ever. By requirements of the law. You don't add a thing to what Jesus has done. You don't subtract anything to what Jesus has done. Amen? Not a thing. As was promised in the writings of Moses and prophets long ago, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who you are. Is that good news? Is that I mean, it's just, I'm going to talk about this next week. If you embrace the gospel, there's a silly joy. Silly joy. You know where it comes from? You literally walk around going, I'm a Christian. Me. <laughs> I'm serious. If you truly embrace the gospel, there's a silly, like, me. Uh, me. I'm a Christian. You love me. And it's the legalistic, pharisaic, I can do it, I'm doing it, people who walk around going, Me. <laughs> me. Did y'all know that? Me. Oh. If you only knew. Silly joy. Silly joy. I think that's how Paul was. I think that's how Paul was. Do you know what the gospel is? Stop trying to steal self-acceptance from everything and anything that you're accustomed to in the world. And as Martin Luther said, Begin to warm your heart, warm your soul at the fire of the privileges that you have in Jesus. Stop trying to steal self-acceptance. Why? Look, every day of our lives, the verdict is in. The verdict is in. What is, and the gospel says the only verdict by the only person that really matters is in. And that verdict says, by God, in Christ, you're in. In Christ, you're acceptable. In Christ, you are unconditionally loved. In Christ, you're embraced. Hallelujah, the gospel. We should erupt right about now and go in, me, me, you, 
You know why our response is one of, eh, or I don't know. Gospel every day working into your life. If you're not a Christian here, can I just like for one minute talk to you? Do you know why becoming a Christian is so counterintuitive and counter seemingly productive? Here it is. It's not about believing Jesus Christ raised from the dead. That's hard too, belief in that. But here's the reason why. Because essentially becoming a Christian is you go in. Here's my personal standard of righteousness. Here's how I functioned all my life. Here's how I've developed an identity for myself. Here's how I've said to myself, I'm okay with me. I'm okay with my family. I'm okay with even you, God. Here it is. Ready? My work. My achievement. Me as a parent. How much money I've earned. How smart I am. What school I went to. How moral I am. How religious I am. All these things, God. All these things. And you're telling me that to become a Christian, I need to come to you and go, all of this stuff, it's like filthy rags. Look at Jeremiah. All this stuff is like filthy rags. I don't think so. Ah. That is the human condition that keeps people from embracing the gospel. The truth looks at you and I in the face and go, all the things that you propped yourself up, God says, that means nothing. But here's the wonderful news of Jesus. Is that when you're willing to come and say, you and I both know all of this, nothing, nada. God says, then I will welcome and embrace Make right and give you the only verdict of unconditional acceptance that you've longed for in the first place anyway, that in Christ you are forgiven, loved, made right. Is this good news? I, I don't, maybe I'll just, I, I, maybe it's because I needed to illustrate it. Yeah, maybe it's because I needed to illustrate it for you, okay? Of what this looks like. You ready? Because it's in the conceptual realm. Carlos, if you could help me. Yep, the Tupperware is back. So for those of you that don't know what the Tupperware is, and you're going, that seems like an inside joke. Why are they laughing? That's because it is an inside joke, and we're laughing, okay? Here it is. Here's what the Bible says, Ephesians 2.1. You ready? Ephesians 2.1. Ephesians 2.1 says that you and I, every single one of us, Christians not, uh, before, before we became a Christian, were in sin. In sin, in transgression. You know what that means? That doesn't mean that we just sin because we're just bad people. Sin is a natural part of our identity. Before Christ, sin has a hold on us and enslaved us. Sin, we prop up personal standard of righteousness, do everything, anything apart from God, life apart from God, all those things. And here's what the scripture says. In Colossians chapter 1, that even though we were in sin, not just sinning, in sin, literally in sin, God out of his grace and mercy rescued us. That's you, okay? He rescued us out of a kingdom of darkness and transferred us. I need like a Vanna White. You know what I'm saying? Help me out here. Okay. Transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. Now let me ask you a question. Really important question. Because this is the truth that we could all grab. Did you do anything to do this? Did you and I play any part in that? And last time I checked, there are no arms, no legs, nothing on this Tupperware, right? All right, silly joke. Okay. God, out of his grace and mercy, literally takes us out of the kingdom of darkness and he transports us in. Do you know how many times, thousands of times, dare I say, the word or phrase in Christ appears in the New Testament? Why? Why? Because he says it is critical for life transformation. He transfers us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. But it doesn't just end there. Because there's a truth that you are already kind of sort of embraced. And that is, not only are we transferred into Christ, but when we become a Christian, Christ what? Comes and lives Where? We are in us. That's pretty huge. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the glory of God, the Bible says, comes and lives in you. He comes and lives in you. But this passage also says, not only does Christ come and live in you, but he says, God takes you with Christ in you, you, in, transfers you out of darkness and sin into Jesus. And this right there is pretty cool, is it not? This right there is pretty awesome, but it doesn't end there, you see? It doesn't end there. Oh, no. Because the Tupperware gospel says that there's another truth, another truth and identity. And here it is. The Bible not only says that Christ is in us and that God has delivered us into Christ, but Bible says over and over again that Christ is where he is in God, that he is a fullness of God. So here's what happens. That's what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Man, the 9 o'clock service is so dead. What does God do? God takes Christ 
in me and you in Christ. And right there, that's pretty powerful, okay? That's pretty powerful. Where's that lid? Where's that lid? Okay, lid is back there. That's pretty powerful because here's what the Bible says. Nothing could change that. Nothing could change that. Not you, not anyone. Nothing could change that. But not only that, but the Bible also says that God with Christ in you, with you in Christ, God takes Christ. And where are you? You're in God. This is where you are. Now listen. Does this change because you had a bad Saturday? Say yes or no. Does this change because you had a bad Saturday? No. Then why do we function like it does? Why do we think because we have a bad Saturday, God doesn't answer our prayers, but because we have a Monday that God does? This says Saturday doesn't matter. You have a bad Saturday. Does it matter on whether God guides you then on Saturday and then on Monday because you had a good day, God guides you on Monday? Answer, no. This never changes. Let me put it this way. You're the determining factor. It's up there, Carlos. The determining factor in your relationship with God is not your past or your present, but it's Christ's past and Christ's present. I'm working my tail off here this morning, Michael. I'm tired. I'm sick, too. I'm not feeling good today. Is this good news? Do you know how powerful your life would be, how different it would be if you embrace this truth that you in Christ, Christ in you, Christ in God, and that this never changes no matter what you do? Now, I know there's some of you saying, but what about, what about if you preach that? People are going to go out and mess around, go free grace, easy grace. I'm going to talk to you in a moment, but before I do, why do we need to embrace this? Because listen to what, the Bible just comes alive when you, look, John chapter 1, 18 says something so powerful, so powerful about how much God loves you that you and I don't connect with. You know what John 1, 18 says in the NASB, John 1, 18 says, just as Christ, the Son of God, is in the bosom of the Father. And if Jesus is in the bosom of the Father, where are you? Come on, where are you? In the bosom of the Father. Let me put it this way. There's only two people in the entire world, in the entire world, now to be three, who could be in my bosom, who could be that close. And they both live in my house. Do you know the kind of love, intimacy, vulnerability? You have to hold a child in your arms, in your bosom, and Jesus Christ paints this picture and says, because this is true, I don't care what you did last Saturday. I don't care what you've been doing for the last month. That never changes. You are in his bosom. But what about, I'm going to get to you in a moment, okay? Do you know why this is so, let me just give you two examples of how this is so powerful every day, not future, every day. I got an email this week. It's one of those emails. You ever get emails where people just kind of criticize you or, or accuse you of something and you know it's not true? Anybody ever gotten that? Anybody criticize? How do we normally respond? If you're like me, you know, I start throwing things, you know? I start kicking things. I don't. When I get mad, I get real quiet. Anybody else like that? I get real quiet. I just go, Because oh. you feel the wound. You feel the hurt, right? Especially if it's not true. As I was feeling that and feeling the temptation just to lash out, I felt the Holy Spirit come, and he says, preach the gospel to yourself right now. But God, Peter, you're in my bosom. I don't care. You're in my bosom. You're, your identity is secure. Your identity is set. Your identity is secure. I didn't say your foundation is set. It's not about what you do. Someone in my says, it's set, it's set, it's set. And you know what it did for me? It didn't just make me go, oh, okay, yeah. You know what it did? God began to speak and say, Peter, he might be wrong about that, but you know, there are other areas in your life if he only knew. And I was humbled. Instead of this defensive, how dear. Peter, you know there are other areas in your life, right? That if he only knew. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, God, my identity is not about, yeah. And I was able to respond and say, this is the truth. That's not true. But I didn't get all defensive and riled up. 
Furthermore, if somebody criticizes you every, not every day, I was going to say, but when you experience that, and it's true, <laughs> then you have the humility because your secure identity is set and you don't get crushed. You don't lose yourself. You go, that's true, but you know what? That doesn't define me. See how powerful this is? Secondly, sin. Do you know why we don't do well dealing with sin so on and so forth? Flat out, many of us, we avoid it. We avoid dealing with it, in other words. We know what the sins are, but we, why do we avoid that? Because we're afraid. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. You're afraid. Why? Well, you're afraid of God's judgment. Now, let me speak to those of you that say, but if you preach this, right, identity thing and security thing, no matter what, Saturday, you know what's going to happen. People are just going to go off and do their thing. Let me address you directly and why that is so unbiblical and anti-gospel. Because if you're one of those people saying, well, if you do that, then people are just going to be all about license and do whatever. Your motivation, ultimately, at the end of the day, why you're a good person, moral Christian, is fear. It's fear. It's fear of other people finding out or fear of God finding out, God judging you. And do you realize if you do anything out of fear for yourself, that is the most selfish reason to do anything? Because ultimately at the end of the day, it's about your reputation. It's about your behind. Bible says perfect love casts out fear. Bible says when you embrace the gospel, you don't function out of, God, if I do this, I'm going to get hurt. If I do this, I'm going to. Bible comes along and says, here's the motivation for the gospel. You no longer function because you're going to get hurt. But the fear is now hurting the one that you love and you cherish. When Jenny and I were dating, I did everything possible to impress her. To be seen as righteous, right? Everything possible for her to go, all right, when you pop the question, I'll say yes, okay? Do you think after we got married, I then went, all right, hard work is done, all right? I'm going to be a jerk. I'm going to do my own thing because I know you love me. You know what? The motivation level went even higher. Motivation no longer has become a fear of being hurt, being rejected. The fear now becomes a gospel fear that says, why would I do anything and hurt the one that I love? Why? Why would I ever do that? Gospel. If you embrace this into the depths of your soul, it will transform you. And next week, I'll talk a little bit more about practically how that works out as we talk about specific character attributes. I already gave you one. Many of us, our daily problems, criticism, rejection, gospel says, I have the answer to that. You're secure. You're in. Let's pray together. As you pray this morning, you know, I could only talk. I can't, uh, I can't make these truths come alive in you. I can't. Only God, the Holy Spirit, can. How powerfully our lives would look different. how powerfully our lives would look different were we to embrace the core of the gospel into the depths of our soul to be free I don't know exactly where you are but can you go ahead and pray Whichever way God might lead your spirit and prompt you.
myself in thee I hide myself in thee I hide myself in thee Sing that again I hide myself in thee You know the psalmist prayed God you are my hiding place In light of the truth that we share this morning hope that that verse comes alive in a different way more than just protection from harm it's a confession of your identity your condition where you are i hide myself in thee 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 god that is our prayer the entirety of our lives every second every moment we want to be found in you all that we are all that we could ever be god we pray that you would be our hiding place that you would be god the source of all that we are all that we dream all that we dare hope to be thank you for keeping us close to you thank you for keeping us in your bosom thank you for keeping us close to your heart god and calling us your beloved calling us your son calling us your daughter calling us righteous holy faithful calling us one of your own we worship you church let's all stand together as the worship team leads us Sing this not just as a prayer request but as a prayer of confession and acknowledgement of who he is and what he has done. You are in Christ. Thank you Lord. 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 church embrace this truth today this week every day of your life God will set you free and live your life as God designed us to have a great week we'll see you back here next week happy mother's day everybody two sundays till may 27th see you next week take care